everybody. Thanks for coming back to listen to the show. My guest for this episode is Dr. Jeremy Rossman, who is a virologist. Now, Jeremy has already been on the program uh, on episode eight, and I'm very happy to have him back on. And again, I'll thank all of you listeners for coming back to the show. I know there is uh, quite a bit else going on in the world today. And as Jeremy and I discuss in this episode, the pandemic is still raging on and is still a very, very severe issue of immense consequence. So this still warrants much attention. Now, I feel this episode is very much a continuation of the last one. And Jeremy and I continue on discussing vaccines for the most part, as well as a couple other pertinent issues. So please enjoy. Cheers, guys. All right. So our first returning guest, Jeremy Rossman, is back. How have you been doing, Jeremy? Good. I guess I have that uh, dubious pleasure of the uh, the one that comes back for more here. Absolutely. <laughs> I think <laughs> you get that honor. So I think we have quite a bit to talk about today. Um, I, I think before we get into one of the bigger topics, uh, I just want to run over a, a few things that have uh, uh, happened as of late and what your thoughts are on them. Uh, first, uh, what have you made of the big spike in cases in Seychelles? Uh, yeah, so th- this is a very interesting recent development because this is a this is a country that had an extremely productive vaccination campaign. They have a large percentage of their their population that was vaccinated um, with you know two doses for for a large number of people, and you know now they're actually having an outbreak, and so you know this this raises a lot of questions of you know are we getting new versions of the virus that are evading the vaccines enough that you can actually have an outbreak with a vaccinated population. How much of the infection in the country is due to people that have not yet been vaccinated versus people that are? And then, you know, what happens with the different vaccines. So I'll sort of dive into all of these components just a little bit. So, you know, the the first part is that, you know, we hear a lot about this idea of herd immunity, this idea that, you know, once you get to a level of vaccination of the population, you know, some people are saying, you know, maybe 70% or so, that you really won't get outbreaks of the disease anymore, that it'll really stop that transmission and it'll really protect the whole population, even the portion of the population that hasn't been vaccinated yet. And the the problem is that, of course, we don't know if that's actually possible with COVID. It might not actually be possible. You know, more people you vaccinate, the lower the transmission is going to be. That's pretty clear. But we might never get to that point where there is that level of immunity that stops all transmission and protects that remaining portion of the population. And so here you're getting sort of almost a little mini trial of that. But it's important to remember that 
they did not have, you know, that critical threshold of, say, arbitrarily 70 percent of the population vaccinated with both doses. So they weren't at that point where if herd immunity was going to work, that it would have come into play. So it's reasonable that they're seeing an outbreak like that. That can occur. It doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccination campaign isn't working. And when you look at the infections, you do see that a large number of the infections in the country are in people that haven't been vaccinated, in tourists that have come into the country, or in people that only have one dose of the vaccine. So, of course, again, that would make sense. But the thing that they are seeing is that there are infections of people that have been vaccinated. So that is occurring here. But the sort of other really important point is that, you know, which vaccine is primarily being used? And, you know, in the in the U.S., in Canada, you're talking all about, you know, vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna. Um, and those are vaccines that have extremely high efficacy. They're really good at preventing people from getting COVID disease. Now, some of the other vaccines, you know, we, we talk about AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca has a lower efficacy, but then they have a lot of other vaccines from other countries. China has multiple different vaccines. We have the, the Sputnik vaccine, but in, in the island, it's mainly been, um, I'm not 100% sure exactly which vaccine, but it's one of the, I'm pretty sure it's one of the Chinese vaccines. That yeah, I'm, has, I'm, I'm, uh, pretty, I'm pretty sure it is Sino, the Chinese ones. I, I, can't I think it's Sinopharm uh, or Sinopharm or Sinovac. And this is, this is a vaccine that has an efficacy rate that, that is just over 50%. Mm. And you know, the, the WHO early on set a threshold for efficacy of saying, like, in order for the vaccine to be approved, in order for people to, to use it, we need to see that there's an efficacy of at least 50%. And so they just met that threshold. But that means that this vaccine is not nearly as good at some, as some of the others at stopping COVID illness. Now, it's still quite good at preventing severe COVID illness. So, you know, in the country, they're not seeing this massive overrun of hospitals. They're not seeing this huge spike in fatalities that you might think of with a COVID outbreak. And part of that is probably due to the protective effect of the vaccine. It doesn't mean that people aren't getting the disease. It just means that when they get it, they're protected from some of the most severe effects. So you have multiple different components at play. You have part of the population that hasn't been vaccinated. You have part that's only been partially vaccinated. And then you have a vaccine that isn't quite as efficacious. So all of that combined with the fact that we now have variants that are starting to evade the immune system, whether that's the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, the Indian variant, so you combine that all together and we're getting a fairly big outbreak. And so it, it's an interesting case in point, but it doesn't mean that the vaccines won't protect a country or won't protect a community from COVID illness. It just means it's it's really complicated and there are lots of components that factor in here. Uh, one thing that came to mind, um, is it, uh, like I agree, I haven't heard anything yet about you know, hospitals getting overrun or anything of that sort. But is it perhaps too soon um, to 
look at the death rates. You know, usually that follows up uh, a couple weeks after or so. It seems that the infection spike is still pretty recent, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, we we always see that where you you see the fatality rate that rises, you know, maybe two weeks or so after you see that spike in cases. And so it it is very possible that you're going to see some of that, but there's still the it's it's 60% of the population has been vaccinated. And so that is going to have a significant impact on that severe illness, on that um, really on hospitalization and on fatalities. And so it's, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in a couple of weeks. It, we could potentially see that rise in fatalities, but I don't think that's going, what's going to happen. We might see some of that with the people that haven't been vaccinated, but specifically in that vaccinated population, I don't think you're going to see that. And I think that that is going to attenuate this, this impact on the health infrastructure and on the fatality rates that we're seeing there. Okay. And you, you mentioned the, the herd immunity threshold. Now, like this has been, you, you mentioned it's, it's sort of arbitrary and it's been tossed around for quite a while for, you know, in, for different means. Uh, how did they come across that specific number? I'm sure they didn't just fully pull it out of the air. Maybe they did. Like where, where does that 70% number come from? Yeah, so the 70% number is a calculation that is based on how efficacious the vaccine is or protective immunity, uh, how, if you had been infected before, takes into account the R number, the R naught of the virus, which is something that we we talked a lot about early on in the pandemic, but is something that has sort of fallen off the radar quite a bit. And this is this is basically a measure of, you know, how likely if one person gets infected with the virus, how likely are they to spread it on to X number of people? So the higher the R naught is, that means that one person infects, you know, two or four or t- eight or 30 different people. So the higher that value is, they effectively, the more transmissible the virus is. And so if you have uh, an r naught that is you know, very low, then it's a little bit easier to contain. And part of the problem is that this r naught changes with the different variants. And of course, r naught is sort of where you start with how transmissible the virus is, but it's all then taken into context of what the local environment is, what the the restrictions are, what the different actions are. So it's a it is a dynamic process. But basically, what this means is that it's a calculation that takes into account multiple d- different variables that aren't just what vaccine you've used, but also you know what virus are you seeing. So, and importantly, it's an estimate, and you know. We've seen a lot of times that you do estimates with uh, almost anything in terms of COVID, and it's a helpful starting point, but you can't rely on that for the way things are going to go. I mean, we've seen that in you know the U.S. and Canada and prediction of case numbers and fatality rates and things like that. It's a useful tool, but you have to remember that it's just a tool and just an estimate and not necessarily an indicator that if you get to that level that came from the estimate, that all of a sudden you are going to see something occur, you know, in nature. 
You might, but you also might not because it's just an estimate. Gotcha. Uh, now I'm going to jump gears here. Um, we, we, we talked before about the, the different vaccines and, and you, we went over the point of, you know, th- there's differences and, uh, you know, they're, they're not perfect, but you know, pretty much any vaccine is, is better than, than no vaccine, you know, taking into account the, the contrary. But uh, so what's happened recently in Canada, and I'm not sure if this is happening a lot elsewhere, like in, in, before we discussed, and I'm sure a lot of the audience will know, you know, that there's been sort of a, a, a dance around with uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, you know, countries taking a long time to uh, bring them in uh, to the a component as a component of their overall vaccine distribution or pausing them for a while. And now the the trend has been in Canada, and I'm not sure how it started. I know before a lot of the provinces uh, paused AstraZeneca that uh, Dr. David Fisman and Dr. Andrew Morris came out and said, well, with, you know, how well Pfizer is and and, uh, both mRNA, Pfizer and Moderna, how well they are, you know, with this blood clot thing, well, perhaps we should just, I think it's about time that we got rid of AstraZeneca, which, you know, personally, I thought was unwise because still, you know, because from, from my perspective, that's, or there's, there's two issues there from, from my perspective, whether, you know, as much my perspective, you know, it might completely lack merit. Uh, there's the one issue of, you know, it, it's still a chunk of the vaccine supply that then gets taken out. And the second issue is, is that if some people out there would prefer to, to take the viral vector vaccines and say, you know, I for you know, whatever reason, I don't really want to have the mRNA vaccine. I'd rather have this one. Well, then you, you, you're not giving people choice and you might have, I'm not sure if this would maybe even be the case that people who might think this way, it might be infinitesimal, but might have then some, some hesitancy and maybe skip out on the vaccine. And considering how low uh, the this this blood clot issue is, and, and maybe there's something new on that you can comment on. Uh, it, it just seemed to me really unwise. And then following that, and I'm not sure if you know this is the reason you know, that some of these uh, scientists and physicians you know made this recommendation as to why the provinces started backing away from AstraZeneca, and if this is occurring anywhere else. But it does it seem unwise to you at this point to for places like most of the but, you know, I, I think it's just a couple provinces who haven't, you know, stepping stepping away from AstraZeneca at this point. So it's a, it's a really complicated problem because you know all things being equal, you know, we we look at the data from the mRNA vaccines, and the mRNA vaccines have a higher efficacy rate. So that's that's great news. And then you look at these blood clotting disorders that people are are understandably very concerned about. And you're looking at that with Johnson and Johnson and with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, you know, it's an extremely low rate. So this is still a very rare event, but, you know, so you're saying, well, Pfizer and Moderna, there's a higher efficacy and a lower risk of this blood clotting disorder. So all things being equal, well, why would you not go with that? 
But the, the issue is that, of course, all things are not equal. Because, yes, if we had plenty of supplies and plenty of freezers and plenty of ultra-low temperature storage for the vaccines, and we could you know, get enough vaccines for everybody in the world tomorrow for Pfizer or Moderna, great. You know, that that's that's an easy solution. And I'd say, yeah, go ahead, do that. Don't use AstraZeneca for it. But of course, that's not possible. That's not the reality. And right now, in many countries in the world, vaccines availability is extremely limited. You know, so some countries, the US is doing better than than many. Some countries are, have been doing even better. And, you know, there are there are many areas in the U.S. right now where where anybody can just sort of walk up and go get a vaccine on the spot. And that's great. And sometimes you can even choose, you know, which vaccine you would like to get. That's wonderful. But that is not uh, the typical situation in the rest of the world. Many, many countries have very low rates, very low availability and are at a course that it's going to be many months, if not potentially years before they are able to vaccinate their populations. And those are countries that have access to the vaccine, that can afford the vaccine and are still struggling with that distribution and having enough supply for everybody. You then go further out in the world, and you've got many countries that can't afford the vaccines or that don't have access to them, can't pay the royalties on the patents, can't do this in order to actually get those vaccines. And then you have a really big problem because, of course, you know it's so easy to focus on your local environment, your local community, or your local country and say, great, we're doing wonderful in terms of vaccination. And, you know, you might be, and that can help a lot right now, but the virus is still going to exist in the world. So say, say tomorrow the U.S. got to 100% vaccination. Wouldn't happen, but it, it, it would be great. That doesn't mean that the U.S. is no longer at risk, because what you have to remember is that the virus is, of course, still evolving because it's still spreading throughout the rest of the world. And what we've seen time and time again is that the more the virus spreads, the more chances it has of mutating, of forming a new variant. And what we're seeing is more and more variants that have started to evade the vaccine-protected immunity. And so if you just focus only on your country and ignore the rest of the world, well, then you have a really big problem. Because then, first of all, that's you know, dramatically inequitable, and you are putting so many people's health and lives at risk, but you're also running the risk, even if you're just viewing it self-centeredly, you are at a huge risk because the virus is going to continue to evolve in other countries. And that will then, of course, spread, continue to spread around the world. And eventually you might get to a point where, yeah, you did wonderful in terms of the vaccine rollout initially. Well, but now you have a new variant and now you got to start over. So that's a real possibility. So we need to be looking, yes, definitely looking locally, what we can do right here, right now in our area. But we need to be thinking about vaccines in terms of vaccine equity, in terms of vaccine distribution, in terms of things like patent waivers for the technology and transfer technology 
to allow the mRNA vaccines or other vaccines to be made in other countries, how we're going to help get those vaccines out to other countries. And this is where having many different vaccines is incredibly important. Because, you know, if you're in a country that doesn't have good vaccine availability in general, but, you know, maybe they they have a campaign, they're affording it, you know, um, until fairly recently, I would have said that's true for Canada, although they seem to have changed the pace a little bit, but uh, still have some problems. But many countries in Europe, too, you know, it's not a matter of being able to afford the vaccines. It's a matter of how they're distributing the availability, the time span. And so in those contexts, if you took AstraZeneca out of that equation, you would have a significant slowdown of the vaccine distribution. And it would take a very long time for people to be able to get vaccinated. And it's important to remember that, you know, we're not talking about here AstraZeneca being a bad vaccine by any stretch. It is a very good vaccine at preventing critical COVID illness. Yeah, Pfizer and Moderna are slightly better, but if we had only had AstraZeneca, everybody would be quite happy right now. This would still be a wonderful vaccine. And yes, it does have some side effects, but they are very rare. And, you know, cough medicine has side effects. You know, painkillers have side effects. Side effects happen. It's something to be aware of. It's something for medical professionals to monitor. It's something that we need to understand why that occurs so that hopefully we can prevent it. But the risks of blood clot disorders from the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to the same risks of blood clot disorders from the COVID disease itself doesn't even compare. And that's just on blood clotting. So it's 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 that sort of, comparison. So this is still a good vaccine. And it's a vaccine that can be stored at a much warmer temperature, which makes it far easier to distribute. It's a much cheaper vaccine. And it's also just fairly widely available in many areas right now. So the combination of all of that means that this is an integral component to many vaccine strategies in, you know, say European countries, but it's also a really important component of the international vaccine distribution. And so if we turn that away, if we say, no, we shouldn't use AstraZeneca, this is going to have very significant impacts for our global vaccine distribution and global vaccination. And given the impact that COVID's having, we can't afford to wait that. People's health and lives can't afford to wait on that. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons there are so many organizations right now that are strongly promoting global vaccine equity and what we need right. to do, patent waivers, um, global distribution. Uh, I'm going to pause you there, Jeremy. Um, and, and yeah, you're, you're tying in, in two good things here. The 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 vac- international vaccine distribution, that's really the, the big main topic that I wanted to touch on with you today. After you know, a couple other things, we'll, we'll, I think we we have quite a lot to dive into there. Um, but and, and then on that too, the the question that, that that's coming to mind then, um, you know, beyond how it affects a country within their borders, if they're you know denying the use of you know X vaccine, uh, how does that specifically 
effect, like let's, well, we'll use a specific case when, when Canada says, no, we don't want to use AstraZeneca anymore for, you know, it's not really, really clear what their reasoning is. How does that then directly affect the rest of the, the global vaccine distribution if one country is denying one vaccine themselves? Yeah, it's you. There are multiple components that you need to sort of factor in there because, on one hand, it's just purely the psychological side of it. So, you know, if you have, if you're going in tomorrow to go get a vaccine and you are told that, okay, what we have available is AstraZeneca, but you read yesterday that Canada had said, you know, no, we're, we're not going to use AstraZeneca, you know, maybe you're not going to go in and get the vaccine. You know, mm -hmm. maybe you're going to really second guess that choice. So there, there's mm -hmm. this impact on vaccine confidence that comes from countries saying, you okay. know, no, we're not going to use it. Um, but it also has, you know, a lot of other effects because, you know, when, when we're talking about vaccine equity, well, you, you don't want to get in a situation where we're saying, OK, well, we're going to give you the bad vaccines, <laughs> we're we're going to, you know, OK, well, we, we don't really want to use that anyway, so we'll send it to the areas that don't have any other options. I mean, people were uh, worried about that um, for, for a long time for just cause. But, you know, this isn't we don't want to be sending the products that we don't want to use to other countries that need them and don't have any other options. That's that's not an ethical way to help combat, um, you know, global vaccine inequity. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeremy. I, 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 you know, just not even any logistic specifics, but just, you know, how you're, you're presenting yourself. And it, it, it would even, it would also seem kind of obnoxious too, I'd think for the rest of the world, you look at somewhere like Canada and, it, and, and you know, well, you know, I, I think it was a lot of, you know, really bad logistic issues on, on our front. And, you know, we, we don't really have a lot of the the wisest people in Ottawa right now, unfortunately, during this crisis. But you know, the 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 rollout has been bad here for logistic reasons. But now, once that's gotten taken care of, you know, we have you know all that we want. And now it's it's sort of it, we're in this this you know position of pomposity where it's like, oh, we don't need AstraZeneca anymore. And it, that that that's it, that's a good point. It's sort of a a bad a really bad message to, to to send to the rest of the world, you know, atop of everything else. It, it is. It's been something that, you know, we, it, within the U.S. has even been a struggle because, so there is a, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And because it had that lower efficacy, even before we started getting into the whole blood clotting disorders, it was it's a lower efficacy. But Johnson and Johnson vaccine had the real, very strong use case of being a vaccine that you could give with a single dose. So if you had areas where there was very high transmission, you had a large population that you wanted to really get as many people vaccinated as fast as possible then you know having say a convention center as a vaccine clinic where you're vaccinating as many people as you can with one dose and getting them really protected as fast as possible makes a lot of sense but the problem is that a lot of those areas tended to be in you know urban areas and tended to be in areas that were of course having the highest rates of covid and suffering the most under covid but we've known for a long time that COVID 
really plays into existing systemic inequities. And so you get areas that are already disadvantaged, and that's where you see highest COVID cases. That's where you see these highest impacts of COVID because it's building on all of the inequities that already exist in the system. And so if you're saying, look, from an epidemiological standpoint, you want to go into those areas where they desperately need the vaccine and get them vaccinated as quickly as possible. So a single dose works perfectly for that. But then if you think about it in the other context, you're saying, well, great, we're, we're going to go into this area that has been disadvantaged and suffering from inequities for many years, and we're going to give them the second string vaccine. So, it, it, of course, that's not why it was done. But you have this you, you have this real issue of sort of messaging in which vaccines are being used, how and why. And it gets very complicated very fast. Indeed. Um, I got a cup. I, I think we should get on to the well, we're going to uh, on the, the the issues of overall vaccine distribution. But I got I got a couple other questions to ask you before we totally jump into that. Um, now, uh, we you sort of mentioned before with the mRNA vaccines about how they have to be kept so cold and all that. One thing that that's crossed my mind has there ever been any issue that anybody's observed of them being mishandled and then as a result you know they essentially become a placebo or is there just really no way that they could keep track of that and that's something that you know we might come across later or is really the handling of it going so well that that's essentially just a, a non-issue Overall, from what we hear about these days, the, the handling of that is actually going quite well. Earlier on, you definitely heard about some, some issues of mishandling of the vaccine and temperature, um, you know, especially for Pfizer that required that ultra-low temperature storage, although um, you know, that, that's been you know, restudied and it looks like they might actually be able to work at a slightly warmer temperature, which makes it very helpful. But yeah, you were getting these situations situations where you know the uh, a vaccine dose was you know a multi-dose vial was perhaps um thawed when it shouldn't have been or you know wasn't frozen appropriately you had a couple of those but it was sort of a it, it seemed very much like this was occurring during that sort of teething period of rolling out the different vaccine campaigns, figuring out how those logistics are working and the different vaccine distribution sites just sort of working on their own process. And even though the, the ultra low temperature storage had a little bit larger of an impact, it wasn't something that you wouldn't see with other types of distributions where you just you sort of iron out those little details at the beginning. So it didn't ever seemed like it was something where people were getting a vaccine that had been stored inappropriately and so were risking getting a placebo. It sounded more like some doses of some vaccines had to be discarded because they weren't thought they weren't thought or stored as appropriate. Okay. Um now there's the as we mentioned, you know, here they're they're getting wanting to step away from, from AZ, and I'm sure this will happen a lot of other places. Is, is there any issue with mixing and matching that they know of, or, you know, is it just 
you know, in, in principle, there, there shouldn't be any problem. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'd love to be able to answer that question. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a great one. It's one on so many people's minds. And yeah, we, we just don't know yet because, you know, in theory, it should work fine. In theory, mixing and matching the vaccines might even work better. We just don't know. And so the, you know, the whole point of the clinical trials of studying these vaccines are that you have a very specific vaccine given at a very specific dose at a very specific time, and then you're monitoring what happens in terms of side effects and in terms of how well the vaccine works. And so at the end of those clinical trials, you get very good data that says, yes, this protocol for this vaccine works this well. And that's what we then use. Now, once you start to say, okay, well, we're going to take part of this vaccine, part of this vaccine, then all of a sudden you're, you're sort of going back in terms of that evaluation stage, because just because each vaccine worked really well and safely independently doesn't mean that they're going to do the same thing if they're combined. And if they are combined, which one you start with, how long between the vaccines and how much you're given will all play a role. So we need to evaluate all of those parameters in more clinical trials. And those clinical trials are ongoing because people really want to know this. Part of the reason for that is that the mRNA technology vaccines can be manufactured in a new version to address, a, say, a variant much faster. And so there's, there's a real case for saying, okay, maybe somebody got fully vaccinated with AstraZeneca, but you know, six months to a year down the line, there's a new variant. We need a new variant vaccine, and that's quicker and easier to do with AstraZeneca with one of the mRNAs than AstraZeneca. And so we look to see how that responds. So it could also be the scenario where, okay, you get one dose of Pfizer and one dose of Sinopharm. And the combination of those two gives you a 99% efficacy and no side effects. Who knows? It could be the opposite. But the issue is, is that if before you do those clinical trials, you're just guessing. And you can't just guess on this because we need to know that the vaccines work and that they're safe. And so this is why we slowly do clinical trials with more and more people always evaluating, are they safe and are they working well? I'm optimistic that the combination approach will work, but we just need to wait for the data. Right. Well, with probably would be just best if, if I think they would just stick to, you know, if, if you started with, with AZ or, or Pfizer, you know, take that again, but you know, that's obviously becoming an issue. Um, anyway, one thing I'm coming across a lot more too is uh, people are, uh, I'm hearing more and more, some people are having concerns with uh, the mRNA vaccines just because they're so novel and uh, like they, they did the clinical trials and, and they, from what I've observed, everything went really well. Um, but uh, they're just concerns that this is a new thing and the, the trials were short because of the, you know, the absolute necessity of, of getting these these vaccines out for obvious reasons. What would you say to, to anybody who's squeamish about the, the mRNA vaccines and, and has any concerns and, and the general hesitancy in, in that regard to, to Pfizer and Moderna? 
Yeah, I, it's it's something that we talk about a lot because, you know, I, I mean, everybody's got concerns about vaccines. You know, this, this is something you're putting into your body. So, I, you know, we all have concerns about that. And this is where I come back to that clinical trial data because, you know, that's what this is designed to do. That's what it's designed to tell you is to say, you know, how well do they work and how safe are they? So I, you know, when I say, yeah, I, I am recommending that, you know, great. If you have an opportunity to get, you know, a Moderna vaccine, or you have an opportunity to go, go get your, your Pfizer shot, like, yeah, go great. Do that. This isn't just a feeling. This isn't um, you know, me me coming at that and saying that I'm very pro-vaccine and I think that they're helpful and important. This is based on the data. This is because I sat down, looked at what the data said from the clinical trials and evaluated what the different side effects are, what the risks of those side effects are, how well the vaccine works at protecting you from COVID and severe COVID disease, but also what the risks of severe COVID disease are and the risks of getting long COVID, even if you have a mild case of COVID. And so it's a matter of saying, look, ideally, we would never have to use the vaccines. We would never have to have a COVID vaccine. We'd just be able to get rid of the virus and nobody would have the vaccine, but nobody would get COVID. That would be great. I would much rather not have the vaccine. But the point is that COVID exists. And the risks of getting COVID are so much greater than the risks that come from the vaccines. And that is the balance that I'm encouraging people to, to look at and think about is that, you know, ideally we wouldn't have either risk, but we have that risk of COVID. We have COVID in the communities. There is a risk of severe illness. There's a risk of fatalities. There's a risk of spreading it to people that you love and care about. And there is a risk of getting COVID, thinking that you're fine and developing a long-term chronic illness of long COVID that can profoundly affect your life. These are not risks that I'm willing to take, especially compared to a vaccine that has incredibly low risks of side effects. And, you know, things like, you know, painkillers or, you know, uh, cough medicine or antihistamines or so many other drugs that we buy over the counter that we don't necessarily even think about have more side effects than some of yeah. these vaccines. Yeah, you know, definitely. Like how many people's stomachs have gone to shit from too much ibuprofen or something? Exactly. And, you know, of course, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, don't don't go use any histamines or painkillers or anything like that. Like, you know, it's not that they have such high side effects. It's just that we're accustomed to the fact that, like you said, if you take too much of ibuprofen, you it, it can cause some some stomach disorders that we're sort of accustomed to that. But this is something new. And that sort of gets back to your question of the sort of newness of this, of, well, this is so new, so isn't that a concern? Why, why should we trust that? And I guess the sort of two answers to that is that, first of all, yes, this is a new vaccine on a new technology, 
But it's not like they just invented this mRNA vaccine technology for the pandemic. This has been in development for decades. They've been working on this for a very long time. Yeah, and yeah, this is the first one that we're using. This is the first one that has made it that far. But this isn't a brand new technology that we're just jumping into without knowing what's going on. And the other aspect is that Again, this is why we have the, those clinical trials so that we can say, even if it's something new, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work um, any differently or it's going to be any more dangerous. In fact, the mRNA technology actually looks to be better than a lot of other vaccine technologies, both in terms of how effective it is, as well as how safe it is. So, I mean, this is really good news. And of course, the clinical trials aren't over. You know, we have that phase three data, but we continue to evaluate the safety and the accuracy of these vaccines for many years to come. So, of course, we're going, we're constantly getting more data. And if we ever see any signs that, of course, you know, things are working differently than we've seen before, then we'll be able to respond quickly and adapt. But we're continuing to evaluate them and will for a long time. Now, on that, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Like, and you know, the, the risk with yourself, your friends, as you mentioned as well too. There's the the, the collective risk. It's like that this virus is getting grumpier, so, so you you know, you have to ensure that we can stop this spread by all means that we have. Because you know that that's of course this unknown unknown that we have as well going into the future, and mm-hmm. and, and the trend there is less than swell. Um, so then, uh, a negative looking forward and, and in a positive, let's, let's start with the, the, the positive and then, you know, touch on, uh, you know, a hypothetical negative. If, if there's any way you can comment on that, maybe it's just, you know, you two out there that it, it could be anything. So like you, you mentioned the MRNA technology and how it's been working you know, as it's crossed my mind, a positive scenario I, that, you know, it, it, I've thought about is could this just if there's no real side effects from this and we're able to update it as, as fast as as you mentioned that that seems to be the case could this be just an extreme breakthrough in modern medicine with the mrna and then also you know if it's at all possible and entertain like what are some you know unpleasant possibilities that could accrue from negative side effects you know, long term that you might not find about for another year or two or something from the vaccines which seems to be the the general idea i'm i'm getting from from people on mrna concerns so it it really is a a game changing technology just because it can be adapted so fast to you know a, a variant of the the virus or a new virus or a new disease, it can be adapted incredibly fast and the manufacturing can be scaled up very fast. So this is an incredibly adaptive platform that could allow you to develop and change vaccines very quickly and much more affordably than was possible before. So that has really significant implications. So, you know, we we talk about the, the flu vaccine. You know, you need the flu vaccine every year, but if you're doing that with mRNA technology, then perhaps that gets faster and also cheaper to do. 
It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that this could provide a route that, you know, things, what we call neglected tropical diseases, diseases that, you know, affect, um, you know, countries that don't have the vaccine technology platforms and don't have the resources to be able to develop vaccines for these diseases, that, you know, maybe we could actually be much more able to make these new kind of vaccines that are useful, not just in, say, Canada or the U.S. or the U.K., but more globally. So there, there are a lot of opportunities there. But of course, there's still a really significant issue, which is that you still need the clinical trials for these. And so even if you adapt the, the vaccine manufacturing technology, which is great, that significantly helps and it slow, it, it really shortens that time frame in which you can, you know, it takes to develop this. But clinical trials still take a long time. And of course, clinical trials take a longer time if you have a disease that that doesn't have a lot of cases every year. So with COVID, you know, you're looking to say how the vaccine performs. And if you have a lot of COVID in the country, you're going to get that data really quickly. But if you're doing that same sort of clinical trial and you only have a case here and a case there, then it takes a lot longer to collect the data that you need. And so that is always going to be a really time-consuming step that's going to slow down this whole process. Now, maybe someday we'll figure out a way that that we can shorten that process. But of course, we can't take cor- we can't cut corners on vaccine safety and ensuring that it works. So this is helpful. It means that it's it's more affordable and faster to make new vaccines, but it doesn't mean that the whole process is necessarily more affordable or faster. It shortens it. It definitely shortens it, but it's still involved and it's still costly. So yeah, it's it's a game-changing technology, but it's not going to completely rewrite it such that you know anybody can go say, oh, here's a brand new disease. It only affects this one community. I'll go make a new vaccine and we'll have that in people's arms in a couple of weeks and it won't cost too much. We're nowhere near at a level where we could say that, but it does help the whole process dramatically. Okay, gotcha. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, um, let's jump gears to back to what we were, were touching on before, and I, what I, I assume we'll we'll spend the the rest of this this conversation with, and that's the international vaccine rollout. Uh, there's there's a lot to touch on. So let's start with how you see things going at, at, at present rates. And then we can touch on, you know, what could be done to, to change that from, from this, from this point in time, you know, the way things are going, it, it seems like it, it it's going to take over a year to get it all rolled out. And then, you know, the, the virus can spread to all sorts of different places and, and keep mutating and, and, who knows what can happen as a result of that? Uh, how how do you see it, it 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 going so far? Globally, very poorly. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, there are some countries, individual countries, that have done or are doing very well. Some countries where the pace is picking up a little bit, but you know, this has been a you know the vaccine and the distribution of the vaccine 
it has been prioritized with doses to wealthier countries that have signed contracts with vaccine manufacturers that can afford to to pay that fee for the vaccines and often countries that were involved in the vaccine manufacturing this is where the majority of the doses have gone so far and this is this is a big problem because even some of those countries have been struggling with their vaccine rollout. Um, you know, even some of those countries are still looking at, you know, potentially years before they've vaccinated, you know, say 70% of the population. So, you know, that's not going particularly well in a lot of areas. But when you look globally, you know, there, there are many countries that have, you know, very little, if, if any, vaccine. And so that that's and, and they don't have this outlook that is say, OK, well, we're, we're looking at, you know, six to 12 months before we vaccinate it. You know, they're looking at, well, are we going to be able to vaccinate? And it's not a matter of, you know, how many months it's a matter of, you know, is this going to be possible? And if so, you know, potentially how many years is that going to take? It's it's a real it's a real problem. And we're also having that added part where, you know, some countries are sort of, you know, doing, I think what's called sort of vaccine diplomacy, where it's sort of using the distribution of vaccines in certain countries as a, you know, a political tool. And so that, that's, that, you know, further complicates the scenario because on one hand that's great you know getting those vaccines out almost any way you can is really important but on the other hand you know where are they going how are they being used and under what circumstances is this actually occurring what we need is a real system that actually gets those vaccines to the countries that need them to countries around the world so that all countries can have access to the vaccines and start vaccinating. And that's just not happening right now. What are some instances of it being used as a political tool, as you mentioned? You know, I, I this this gets well out of uh, an area of expertise <laughs> that I feel uh, qualified to comment on the uh, political implications or the the political sides of that. You know, it, this would just be, you know, things that I've read. But uh, no, this is... Uh, that will uh, I'll I'll stick to something that I can have a an educated comment on because I've you know these are things that I've heard that are occurring but not and you know not in my area of expertise enough to actually be able to weigh in on what what is actually going on and why. Okay, um, yeah, maybe we can come back to that one in another day. Like, is there is but is there like anything? Any any examples that you've kind of heard about? I uh, you, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, so you you think about it. You know, the vaccines are are really sort of this is this is a really valuable, if you will, it's a really valuable a commodity, commodity. Yeah. and especially in areas where vaccines are not available. Um, so what you can sort of, if, if you're not viewing vaccine distribution in a sort of humanitarian standpoint, um, then you have this issue of, well, okay, so it's, it's sort of like a commodity. And so, you know, there've been times where, you know, we, we've heard these stories about, you know, vaccines, um, being brought to 
you know, in, in terms of like climbing trips on Mount Everest as, you know, this is maybe a little bit too far, but, you know, almost as bribes or, or a way to sort of smooth over the process. But of course, you know, there, there have been outbreaks, um, you know, with some of the climbing teams, there've been some outbreaks in, in some of the expeditions. And so you, you do have this dynamics. And then of course, you know, countries can use the vaccines. I mean, if you're doing this big push for vaccines and, you know, this is the generosity of some specific country, then, you know, that, that is that then used for, you know, current political favor or for new trade contracts or, you know, vaccines are often used as political bargaining tools. Um, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. And, you know, it, it's happening. It's happening on small scales. It's happening on, on large scales. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a, you know, in that context, vaccines are incredibly valuable commodity that you are, you know, bringing to a country that really doesn't have that, doesn't have access to that. And that is dramatically furthering the inequity that you know it is sort of driving so much of this um covid transmission in so many different areas so you want to be you know you can't approach global vaccine equity from a lens of you know commerce or trade or you know political favors right interesting and yeah i I won't be surprised if we see if this becomes more of an issue as time goes on, that the the three big powers that be as far as vaccines are concerned start to use it as a tool. But now you mentioned uh, that we need a a new system. So let's go over specifically what that would entail. Right. So, you know, we we definitely need a new system. And, you know, that's, first of all, of course, not a simple or trivial thing to be able to to do or to even contemplate doing, Um, especially given the fact that the global supply of vaccines is very limited right now. So what we're we're talking about are multiple different factors at play. So, you know, one thing that's being talked about is that, you know, a a World Trade Organization waiver campaign. So this this is a campaign to waive the patents on the vaccines to allow the vaccines to be used globally at a a much more affordable rate that can actually help to facilitate this global vaccine distribution. So that's one really important thing. And in the US, you know, I'm very pleased to see that, that Biden recently changed the US policy and came out in support of the waiver campaign, which is a really significant step and you know as you know in canada canada is still on the fence they haven't committed one way or the other to saying whether or not they're going to come out for the the vac- the waiver campaign or not but one of the biggest holding blocks right now in terms of this waiver campaign because there are a lot of countries around the world that are very strong supporters of the idea of waiving patents for the vaccines are most countries in Europe, because the vast majority of Europe right now is has come out against the waiver campaign. And so, you know, countries from the UK um, you know, to, you know, um, 
Brussels has recently actually come out in support of it, but you know the the Netherlands and Germany is a really big um, country that is strongly coming out saying no, we don't support this waiver campaign. And so together, this is a really strong block of countries that is opposing waiving the patents for the vaccines. And because of this, this this is blocked. Now, coming up in the beginning of June, 8th and 9th in June, there's going to be a WTO meeting where they're actually going to be discussing the waiver campaign. So there's a lot of movement right now to try and gain awareness to, to emphasize how important this step is for global vaccine equity. Um, so that is in progress. Now, so that, that's one side. The, the patents are a really important thing because this affects the whole costing and the ability of other organizations to make these vaccines. But just having that removed, that's not enough. That doesn't magically make vaccines appear. You know, so then you have that you have that other side of okay, so what what do you need to do? Next, and one of those answers is this um, idea that the World Health Organization has been promoting as part of COVAX, which is this uh, mRNA vaccine technology transfer hub. This idea of, you know, can you actually develop the manufacturing technology expertise capacity in other countries to allow the countries themselves to make vaccines or, or, you know, even regions to make their own vaccines that coupled with having the vaccine patent waiver together may allow for sort of much more regional developed vaccine manufacturing. And now that's still going to take time to do, but with that technology transfer and with the patent waiver, that goes a long way in saying instead of just the vaccine coming from, say, the U.S., or coming from China or coming from Russia, we actually have a much more distributed network of vaccine manufacturing that will greatly help the distribution. And of course, the final thing is, of course, that, you know, this needs money. This needs money and this needs vaccines. And so, you know, looking at how countries can utilize their their vaccine distribution, utilize their supply of vaccines, how countries can donate vaccines, can fund programs like COVAX that can help globally either get vaccines that already exist into countries that need them or get the funding to start these, you know, technology transfer hubs and really get that manufacturing up and running is really critical. Now, what what would be the case against the the patent waivers? Like, is there any concern that if that there is no patent protection, that you know anybody's making them, and then you might have like as with some concern with with generic drugs that you get bad manufacturing making. You know, bad products and then issues there or is there you know, what what are or on top of that what are some other uh points to be made for the case of holding on to the, the patents so the you know one, one of the arguments that's being used against it is saying that this is going to impact you know global impact vaccine manufacturing make vaccine manufacturing less less profitable less it's going to stifle competition um, that it, it's going to have an overall detrimental impact. But, and, and, you know, 
on one hand, there's there is you know a, an argument to be made on that side, but on the other hand, this is a pandemic. This is not a company that is making a product that then they are trying to sell. And to think of a vaccine as a product, and the, to, to me, this is one of the critical distinctions, is that if you're viewing a vaccine as a product, well, then, you know, competition and, you know, business development and marketing and even, you know, just diplomacy issues and trade deals, you know, then that really comes into play. But this is a pandemic. This is not just a product. This is a critical, essential, life-saving medicine. This is something that needs to transcend that idea that a vaccine is a product. And we need to look beyond that because otherwise we are all going to be at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's it's not even... Let, let, let's say you just throw the humanitarian concerns down the shitter. Like it, it's, it, it, it's it really just the antithesis of self-interest because as we've mentioned, they can just keep spreading and who knows how deep the rabbit hole is going to go. Um, now on the, um, uh, I guess now, now you, you, you sort of touched on like that. There's the hurdle of actually being able to get more vaccines out there by not having it constrained with the patents. Like what are some more of the, the broad scale logistic concerns that we need to, that would need to be taken into consideration and, 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 and to watch for, you know, if, if this does occur and we're able to start getting more vaccines out there, what, what's being done there and, or what else could be done? Oh, that's a, a yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a really important point because yeah you know this so much of this is great in in theory but that when you actually are trying to put it into practice you know the logistical barriers of this are immense and you know okay so that that is everything from saying okay what temperature do the vaccines need to be stored at and if you're then distributing the vaccines across the country you know, do you have that cold chain capacity? Can you maintain that vaccine at that temperature until you get to that distribution point? And that also affects, you know, if you're doing this sort of, you know, technology transfer hub model, well, you know, you have to look at the subsequent distribution because maybe you need much more local sites for the manufacturing than you would need otherwise. Or maybe you have a really good distribution network. You do have capacity for cold storage, in which case you might have more, more capabilities there. Also, you know, the, the vaccines all differ in that cold storage conditions. So how each one works is going to be slightly different. But all of this infrastructure from, from you know, getting the, you know, the manufacturing capabilities, just in terms of instrumentation, to to different countries to setting up that site where they can actually you know manufacture store you know package the vaccines you know that's that's not a small technological and logistical hurdle but then you need the the expertise so you need the logistics to make sure that there is that that local expertise to be able to run that facility 
then you need to have that logistical capacity of the distribution network. And we've seen in you know many countries, you know, dramatic failings in distribution. And I mean, I'm not I, you know e- even in countries that really should have systems in place that that really don't uh, or or sort of fail at that distribution side. So that's not trivial either. And then of course you need that messaging side. Because, you know, it doesn't do you any good to get the vaccines out to your local community and then have the community either not know or not care. Hmm. So there's there's massive logistical hurdles. And, you know, a lot of people are working on this extensively, figuring out, trying to figure out how you do that. But in the best case scenario, you have an adaptable model. You work with with what is already there. You know, you don't want to try and recreate something and have to build something for scratch. So, you know, you work with the the closest local manufacturing capacities that you have that might be able to be adapted with this technology. You work with the, the local research expertise to develop the training. You work with the local distribution networks for, for whatever exists in that region. So the more that you can sort of work at a local level, learn from the local community, work with the structures that they already have in place, the easier this is going to be because the less you're going to have to develop. But that means you need that adaptable context and framework and also that sort of listening approach of not coming into an area and saying, this is how we're going to do it, but listening and talking to people and understanding you know, what resources are there, how do things work in that region, and then have an adaptable model that works in that context. Okay, could you give a specific example on that, just to, to highlight that a bit more, what, what that might look like going into a certain place and, and then try, trying to make something uh, adapt accordingly? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so sort of as, I mean, first of all, this is, you know, uh, this is a, again further, f- way further off field from uh, you know my my specific area of expertise. <laughs> but you know it, it's from from my perspective. There's there's just if you go into different areas, there are systems in place because you know goods and people are constantly moving between different areas. Things are being manufactured. There are a lot of systems in place already. And so the more that you can work and adapt with that, and, you know, this can be anything. I mean, you know, certain areas, okay, so maybe there, there isn't good distribution networks by road. So maybe maybe you have a, a system where you're, you're in some areas, you're, you're distributing vaccine by boat. Um, you know, maybe in a certain area, they have really good manufacturing capacity, but they don't have the, the strength of research capacity. And so you, you know, you help bring in that outside research expertise, but then you work with the local manufacturing. Or maybe you have an area that has really good research, but doesn't have that same level of manufacturing expertise, in which case you bring that that expertise in. So it, it's, you know, there's there's not a, I mean, again, you know, I, I, I'm not the one to be saying how, how this should actually be done, but there's not a hard and fast rule. It's just, you know, it's it's a matter of saying, look, we, we know that you need to make the vaccines. We know you need to be able to make the vaccines. You need to to package them. You need to store them. You need to get them 
to the people. And then you need to talk to the people about what's happening and make sure that the people actually want that. And so in all of that, the more that you can be working with the local context, the easier it's going to be doing that. So, you know, we look at, you know, talking to people about the vaccines and vaccine confidence. And if you just have a broad messaging campaign where you have one message and you send it out to every community, that helps to some extent, but it doesn't help nearly as much as if you go into a local community and say, okay, so tell me about your community. Tell me about what your what your concerns are. Why are you concerned? What do you hear about COVID? What do you hear about the vaccines? And let's actually talk about what the situation is by you know listening at a community level and then sort of responding with that expertise, responding with those resources. Then you can develop a really positive and really strong partnership that helps people be a lot more confident in the vaccines and a lot more engaged in the process. Okay. Now I'm going to jump back a bit. Um, now, th- th- this for sure touches on, on the uh, humanitarian crux of the issue, but it might also generally tie into you know, you know, o- overall interest of, of the whole world. I'm not too sure, but... It, so as an alternative, or maybe more so a, a counterfactual, um, at the beginning of when the, the vaccines started to, to trickle out, should have there been a global initiative, e- e- even with patents in place and you know the initial vaccines to try to start spreading the vaccines all throughout the world, uh, you know, to uh, uh, w- and and not so much where you know so much are just going to specific places, and uh, it's sort of a situation of you know uh, look after yourself and then figure everything else out later. Where you know try try to have everybody coordinated and try to um, ha- have a, a sort of an internationally coordinated vaccine rollout that way because there's already you know it's not like you know. All, the the first world countries aren't spending a whole bunch of money every year on aid. So, you know, it it doesn't seem so much a a monetary issue. And as we mentioned, you know, with the, the vaccine or the, the, the virus just spreading more and more and mutating, there seems to be a a lack of self-concern there. Should there have been just a a different initiative and, and trying to spread the vaccine around and, you know, what might, how, how might that work? So, so this is not new. This this idea of saying, you know, all, all these things that we've just been talking about, you know, not, none of these are particularly new ideas. Nor, nor is any of it particularly a novel idea. It doesn't really need to be. Um, these are things that people have been thinking about and talking about and pushing for from from the beginning. This this is something that people have been aware of, and you know things like COVAX have been going on for a very long time. So this is not new. It's just that it hasn't worked, that it hasn't that that traction, that you know engagement, and whether whether that's you know individual company cu- countries started saying, you know, no, we're, we're prioritizing our vaccines first, and then we'll think about internationally, or whether that's you know vaccine manufacturers that are, you know, focused on patents and, you know, or whether it's, um, it, it, there's just, there, there are a lot of different 
elements in play, but this has been promoted, talked about, tried for many months now, and we're, we're still fighting it. We're getting more traction. You know, there has been more vaccines that have been distributed internationally. There have been, you know, more countries that have come out in support of the waiver campaign. You know, there, there is progress but there hasn't been so much progress that has actually resulted in good vaccine distribution. I mean, through COVAX, you know, and the World Health Organization, they have gotten supplies of vaccines that they have been able to distribute, but it's been low amounts because mm -hmm. it, it does tend to be. It's not that it's not that countries don't do aid. It's that, you know, the, the priority is, you know, looking to the, the country first. And of course, you know, Budgets are often being cut right now because the pandemic has had such a significant financial toll. So it's it's been a constant struggle. And unfortunately, I think probably will be a constant struggle for quite a while. It's hard to to, to take a, an optimistic look at it all. Um, it, it, are, are there any other sorts of things that, that, that should be addressed with, with the international vaccine rollout to try to make this, this whole situation better? Well, I mean, I guess one thing that's important, you know, you, you said it's, it's hard to, to, be, to keep an optimistic uh, outlook on this. And yeah, I, it's, it's absolutely true that it is. But I guess, you know, one thing to keep in mind that, that is also sort of a, you know, a, a little bit more optimistic of a viewpoint is that, you know, we're talking right now about Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, and then a little bit of talking about, say, Sputnik and Sinopharm and Sinovac. And, you know, that that's great. But it's also important to remember that there are a lot more vaccines that are coming down the pipe that are e either in later stage clinical trials, earlier stage clinical trials, um, vaccines that are probably going to be licensed fairly soon. And that the more vaccines that we have, the more licensed vaccines, well, first of all, it's just more vaccines that will be available, which is great. But it also just, it, it, there's, there's a lot more opportunities for sort of global equitable vaccine distribution, the more vaccines that you have. And so it's, it's not necessarily like this is going to all of a sudden make it all work or all better, but it's, it is a positive thing. And I, I guess the last sort of positive component and something else to keep in mind is something that, you know, might help change, but the, you know, th there are a lot of efforts that are going on right now that are really trying to raise awareness of what's going on, raise awareness of why this is such a critical problem, both for individual countries as well as globally. And so, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, pitch very quickly that on the 24th, so, so just coming up in a couple days, there's a big international meeting that's hosted by the Zero COVID Coalition of the UK and the Zero COVID Alliance that is a, you know, an entire event that's called the need for a people's vaccine and the fight for vaccine equity. And there are lots of talks about how vaccine equity can be achieved, how to sort of bridge all those hurdles that those gaps and those hurdles that we've been talking about and really, you know, why this is so important and what individual people can do because, you know, any person you know, you can see, okay, is your country supporting, for example, the, the vaccine 
patent waiver. Well, if not, you know, you can go, you can fill out a letter, you can be petitioning that, you know, to come out in support of that. So it's, it's a long hurdle. It's a long fight, but it's also, you know, there, there's progress being made and there are so many opportunities for everybody to get involved in helping to push for global vaccine equity. So just say at this point that uh, in most places where they're, they're still hesitant to uh, get rid of the, the patents that it's probably just lobbying interest. I think lobbying interest is probably playing a huge role. I, I would not be surprised at all. Um, I, I can't, you know, a, again, that's that's <laughs> that's another area that's definitely uh, uh, out of my area of expertise. But but yeah, that would I think uh, lobbying efforts would probably be playing a fairly significant role. Um, very, very possible. Cool. Well, I, I think that's left a, a lot for everybody to think about. Thanks for coming on again, Jeremy, and we'll, we'll have to do this again. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll have some, uh, you know, better global news, uh, better equitable news that we can talk about. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you. Oh, oh and I, I'm assuming that you're still um, not on, on social media or anything like that. So if people want to find you, they got to just start walking around the streets of <laughs> Chicago and exactly that way. Yeah. Okay, so there, there you go. go. Just walk around Chicago and there you go. You'll eventually find a, a nicely bearded man and fuck him there. <laughs> it's very possible. Good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lap Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflap.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor Jeff at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information, shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farton at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.